Hello, I'm Karen Hardwick, and in addition to being a clinically and spiritually trained therapist, I am a leadership consultant. As a result of my work and my own messy and beautiful journey, I know that connection is the antidote. On this podcast, I talk with people, leaders from all walks of life, who embody connection to self, to amazing grace and as a result to others. My guests are those who bravely choose true connection, even as they walk through some hard times. They hold their stories and the stories of others lightly and lovingly with authenticity and grace, empathy and gratitude. They are the ones awakening, broken wide open into wholeness. We are all recovering from something and the sharing of our stories is all about connection not perfection. I have a chair here just for you. We are saving you a seat. Hey everyone, this week I welcome Marty Schreiber, former governor of Wisconsin to the table. He retired from public office to become a full-time caregiver for his wife Elaine who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's and the number is only rising dramatically. Marty and I are two of the millions of spouses who know firsthand what navigating this devastating disease is like. We share our experiences, our hopes, and we urge family members to find healthy ways to walk the path of caregiver. Man, do I have a treat for you today. I am here with Marty Schreiber, who grew up in Milwaukee. He was inspired by his father's example as a member of the Wisconsin State Assembly and the Milwaukee Common Council. And as a result, Marty ran for public office even before he had completed law school. In 1962, he was elected as the youngest ever member of the Wisconsin State Senate He was then elected lieutenant governor in 1970, and in 1977, he became the 39th governor of Wisconsin. Recently, though, and this is why he's here with us today, he retired from his public affairs firm in Milwaukee, and he became the caregiver of his wife, Elaine, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Marty is now an advocate for Alzheimer's caregivers, and in addition to caring for his beloved Elaine, he has written a beautiful book entitled My Two Elaines. He is passionately committed to speaking out to help caregivers and their loved ones live their best lives possible. He and Elaine have four children, 13 grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Marty... I'm so happy you're here today and that you made time to talk to me. Well, Karen, thank you. And thank you so much for all the good work that you do. I know that anyone who listens to what you uh, can visit with them about it carries away with them a better, more comfortable soul. I know that. Oh, Marty. You know, I, I was reading your book and I had to put it down several times because it reminded me so very much of my own journey with my husband who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And in some ways, we had such similar travels, you and I, right? Such similar travels. And as I was talking to you before, people can't really understand what this is like to be a caregiver of a spouse with Alzheimer's until they walk that path. But 
And however, we've had some differences. Like Elaine lived for almost 19 years with Alzheimer's. My husband lived with it for two and a half years. You had such a longer, longer travel with this. So tell me about how you're doing right now. Well, thank you. Um, I'm doing fine. When Elaine passed away a few months ago, uh, I just concluded that uh, I couldn't have asked her to continue on any longer. Her world was so very, very, very small. Inability to take care of any of her daily needs uh, really was not too much aware of anything that was going on. But also, I think, and you and I talked a little bit about this earlier, this whole matter of grieving, I, I think I had a friend who died of a, of a massive heart attack, uh, and that was tragic. Uh, it was so sudden, but there was a funeral and uh, people came by to express their sympathy and, 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 and express their sorriness and acknowledge the grief. What happens to us caregivers is that we never get that closure, that, that final acknowledgement of grief. As you said, people really don't understand what we're going through. And, and so they are not knowledgeable to extend their acknowledgement of our grieving. And we as caregivers, I don't think we understand and acknowledge our grieving because we're worried. We've got maybe a little bit of depression, anxiety, what the future is going to hold, the constant questions from our loved one, all of those things going on. Yet we're losing our loved one just a little bit every day. And finally, I began to conclude that I'm grieving and I've got to face it I've got to acknowledge it. So when you ask how I am doing, uh, I guess I'm doing quite well. Uh, again, I, I couldn't ask Elaine to go on any further. It was time. I think that I went through a period of grieving for a long time, and I do have now some closure. And, uh, and so now I can sort of take a deep breath, take a deep breath. You did such a loving, beautiful act of service. And it's not easy. I mean, it's not like those of us who are caregivers feel like we're Mother Teresa every day. I mean, the reality of it is there are moments of frustration and fear and irritation and our own stress, right? I mean, this, I mean, this creates such a daily toll on the caregiver and the rest of the family, emotionally, medically, relationally, financially, all of those things while we're also really focused on staying connected to our loved one and giving them the best possible care that we can give. So how did you, I love what you did in your book. I really wanna keep drawing attention to your work and to your book because I love what you did in it when you kept calling out, these little tips called what I wish I had done. So here's my here's a thought for you. I would love for you to write an article, Marty, on just those things. What I wish I had done because those tips are so valuable. Can you tell us a little bit about that? One of the things that I concluded in, in this journey with Elaine is that if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And what what... I was ignorant of the disease in that I thought I could take the disease head on and I could overcome it in, in that way. But the fact of the matter is you can't take this disease head on 
And so what you have to do is to try and figure out how best can we help our loved one and ourselves live our best lives possible. That's at the point that I get to talking about these tips. And I tell you, because I didn't know about this disease, I wasn't smart enough to get help. I wasn't smart enough to know I couldn't do it by myself. I wasn't smart enough to understand the importance of joining Elaine's world. And so what I wish I would have done, I wish I would have truly understood this disease and the fact that my goal is to help my loved one live her best life possible and also to know the importance of joining her world. Because as long as I tried to keep her in my world, as Elaine, it didn't happen on a Thursday. It happened on a Friday. It wasn't the Joneses. It was the Smiths. Please don't put the car keys in the dishwasher anymore. As, so, so now my loved one, Elaine, is going through not only what it feels like to know you're going to be losing your memory, but what she's also going through is being criticized for everything that she is doing, whether she's saying something or not. And, and I can just imagine how much more difficult that that was for her. So I didn't realize the importance then of joining her life. And I wish I would have done that sooner. I wish I would have certainly uh, understood this disease so I could not have been so arrogant uh, and self-centered thinking I am the one who can take care of and beat this disease rather than looking at how can I best help my wife Elaine survive. You were trying to help her. And I understand that though, because, because you're a, you're a, get it done kind of a guy, right? I mean, here you are, the former governor of Wisconsin, feeling like whatever they put in front of me, I can handle. Not only can I handle it, I can solve it. I can solve it. I can make the problem go away. I can address it. I can find a solution. And then Alzheimer's shows up. And there is no solution, right? I mean, you write in your book, Alzheimer's doesn't stand still. Isn't that true? Alzheimer's doesn't stand still. Yeah. So 18, 19 years ago, when Elaine was first diagnosed, there was no cure. It could not be delayed. It could not be prevented. Today, August 15th or so forth, whatever, Alzheimer's cannot be cured, delayed, or prevented. And, and, and so there we are with it. One thing that makes this disease difficult for caregivers is it is not a what I call a chicken casserole disease. If, for example, I have open heart surgery and I come home, people will bring me a chicken casserole. If I break my leg or if I replace my hip, people will bring me chicken casserole. But if my wife has Alzheimer's, which is a disease, but if my wife has Alzheimer's, people don't know what to do. And so they stay away. And so not only then uh, do we envision ourselves dealing with this depression and anxiety and seeing our loved one disappear? We also begin to feel deserted by our friends. And also because we're arrogant, we don't ask for help. Asking for help is a sign that you're not give, is a sign that you're not giving up. I would just encourage everyone to please understand that that to ask for help does take courage, but is the smart thing to do because, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to die before your loved one. And why do you want to have your children and grandchildren lose two parents? Life is tough enough. Yeah, and there there is a, a st statistic, right, Marty, that says that the disease can take years and years off of the caregiver's 
life, the caregiver's life. You know, I really resonated with what you said because I'm thinking of two examples from my own journey. A dear friend of mine literally just dropped off the face of the earth, like went missing in action. I had texted her. I had called her. She knew what we were dealing with. She never responded. After my husband passed, I got an email from her that was long and beautifully written. And in it, she said, I could not cope with what you were going through. And one of my husband's dearest friends said the same thing to me while we were going through the terrible, hellacious days. I can't do this anymore, Karen. I can't talk to you. This is too hard for me. So there's two examples of what you're talking about. Now, fortunately, I had some dear friends and my son and my close family members and Greg's best friend rode shotgun with me the entire way. But I even had family members who were ugly toward me because they didn't believe that it was actually happening. And they were trying to twist the details of the reality. So this brings up all kinds of different responses in human beings, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. And uh, what I have learned uh, is that I cannot tell anyone how to handle this disease. For example, I have four children and my son, one of, I have two boys, two girls. My one son wanted to remember mom as she was. My daughters were just always there for me and my other son was sort of helpful and so forth. But you nailed it when, when you describe people who, because they're ignorant of the disease, Ignorance of the disease, even by the medical profession, but even by me, uh, the caregiver, because what I didn't talk to my friends and bring them along. I didn't. What, when when I sent out the proofs for my book, uh, I sent you know the manuscripts to different to different friends or relatives. They said we had no idea what you were going through. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us? Well, one of the reasons I think I was arrogant. I think another reason I didn't tell them. I didn't want to ask for help. And also, uh, <laughs> as you said, some people couldn't believe that Elaine had Alzheimer's because she would try and put her best foot forward. And so what's wrong with you, Marty? You're the one that's... Oh, and so on. yeah, you are so describing it. And, and I think it's such a... It's so related to people's fear. It makes people feel vulnerable to watch you go through it, to watch me go through it, to watch our spouses go through it it almost brings up their own sense of, could this happen to me? Could this happen to my loved one? So if I stay away, I feel safer. I feel more protected. You know, us human beings are complex. And I have a lot of compassion for people who respond the way they respond. It's just fascinating to see the whole variety of emotional responses, right? At a time when you really want people to step in and help you, take you for a cup of coffee, bring a tuna casserole, like you said, for goodness sakes. So thank you for bringing that all up because it's a disease that creates a lot of isolation. As far as friends and relatives and what we might ask of them, there is our loved one who is ill and then there is the caregiver. If they can't feel comfortable being with our loved one on their journey, 
at least they can, very important, simply acknowledge that you know you're going through one of the toughest challenges that any human being could go through as it relates to an illness. And, and I acknowledge that and I give you credit for it. There's, there's one other aspect of this and, and has to do with the feeling of, of, of being deserted and, and, and uh, left alone by your friends. But they say, well, if Elaine doesn't know who I am anyway, so why should I come and see her? Elaine doesn't. And, and the point of the matter is you can talk with a smile. You can hold her hand. You can sing a song. There are so many things. And a while back when Elaine was still in the conversational uh, uh, stage, uh, we're having lunch at the assisted living. And as we're having lunch, she's beginning to cry. And I says, Elaine, why are you crying? Well, she says, I'm beginning to love you more than my husband. Well, I didn't ask her what's wrong with your turkey husband. I didn't do that. But what that proved to me, Karen, was that it was not necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch. And, and I see caregivers and their family become so distraught. And, and I can understand that for a bit. But the fact of the matter is to ask your loved one to remember your name or so forth on details is like asking someone with a broken leg to win a gold medal at the Olympics. So please understand, dear, dear caregivers, that it's okay if your loved one does not know your name. That's all right. It's not necessary because it's the matter of how your hearts can touch. And, uh, you know, we have so little to give our loved one when they are on this journey. And to be able to give them peace and comfort, gosh, uh, what better thing can we do for any human being than to give them peace and comfort? Oh, Marty, thank you for saying that. So beautifully stated. I remember so many times with my husband where I really began to realize the presence of connection. Like connection doesn't have anything to do necessarily with words. It's just exactly what you said. And I would try to tell people when you go visit, it's enough to just be present. In fact, the less stimulation, the better. We don't have to have a lot of activity or words. Sometimes it just gets to the point where it's confusing and creates agitation. So how can we sit and realize that connection is much more powerful than just anything we can say? Which means we have to put aside our own ego, our own ability, our own desire to be the hero. And we have to just lean into that humble presence, like showing up is enough. I go back to one of the reasons I wrote the book, and that was, if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And with what you just said, many people are ignorant of, because they, they think there's got to be this interchange and this yucking it up and all so forth. Again, peace and comfort is one of the best things we can offer any human being, and particularly someone who is who is on this Alzheimer's journey. Now, one one of the things that uh, I, I had people say, no, Elaine, you know, I, I tried to correct her. It didn't happen on Thursday. It happened on a Friday. Uh, and uh, just trying to make, make corrections. But uh, once she asked me, she said, how are my parents? And I said, well, I said, they're both dead. Well, the shock on her face 
when she realized she maybe didn't say goodbye to her parents, much much less attend the funeral, I promised myself I would never put her through that again. Then she would ask me later, how am I a parent? Oh, Elaine, I said, your dad likes his sports. Your mom likes working at church. They're really happy. Oh, Elaine said, that makes me feel so good. That makes me feel so good. Well, that's therapeutic fibbing. And what that is, again, is joining the world of this person who now is. And uh, I want everyone to know that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, there's a footnote on the backside of the stone that was written uh, the Ten Commandments on. It says therapeutic fibbing is okay. (laughs) Now, I do have to warn everyone that I did try therapeutic fibbing the first year of my marriage, and it does not work out so good the first year of marriage, but certainly a therapeutic fibbing. And so when we go to visit someone, uh, and I tell my friends, uh, if they, if I have Alzheimer's and they come and visit me and I think that I'm elected president of the United States of America, they should say, yes, Mr. President, good going. Uh, but to join again, we, we have to understand this disease, the importance of joining uh, the world of this person who now is. And then there's another phrase that I, I read. And again, when we talk about visiting with, with our loved one, while waiting for the storm to pass, we need to learn how to dance in the rain. And so every opportunity when we are with our loved one is to figure out how we can dance in the rain. How, how can we take, if Elaine is admiring a beautiful tree, if we can see the rustling of the leaves and I can join with her, that's sort of dancing in the rain, that's stealing these moments of joy that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And when, what is amazing, Karen, when I really think about it, it is so simple. It is so simple to join the world of this person who now is, and almost as if you would be with a three or a four-year-old child and giving them affirmation and understanding. And so in a way, I feel fortunate I had a chance to be with Elaine and to give her that peace and comfort while she was on this journey. Mm. So interesting that you say that, Marty. I wrote an article for Forbes about Alzheimer's. Um, it was published a couple of years back. And one of the sections of the article talks about joy coming in moments and how we, when we have a loved one who has Alzheimer's, look for those joyful moments where we can just be present and five days before my husband passed, I was sitting with him and I played his favorite song. And by this time, as, as I know you know, he was very out of it. But music was always his thing. So I was playing his favorite song and all of a sudden, Marty, he held his arms up to dance. Now, he couldn't even get out of his bed, but we danced. And it was in that moment, that joyful moment, that I could feel this really deep connection. And it was as if that gave him permission to let go. That was the last time he was really conscious in any way. But it was mm-hmm. just being, pre- instead of somebody saying, well, we can't dance, right? How can- we can't dance, yeah. right? And I get that people want to correct. It makes them feel whatever it makes them feel. But that is such an important tip to give to caregivers is join them in the world. Be with them. Find ways to connect 
that go way beyond words. That's why I I named the the book My Two Elaines. So the first Elaine was this wonderful girl I met when we were freshmen in high school and uh, who was the best mother and the best partner that you could ever hope to have. And then the second Elaine was this different person. And I had to let go of that first Elaine so I could embrace and and hold and and help and and have moments of joy with the second Elaine. And so the book is is my attempt to help caregivers learn, cope, and survive. It's like, Karen, it's like I went on a mountain trail, a very rigorous, dangerous mountain trail, and by the grace of God, I made it. And now I'm sitting at the head of the trail, and other people are coming, and they're going to be taking the same same trail, same path. And I would want to say, wait a minute, before you do that, please take a moment and sit down and talk with me. And let me share just a little bit of what I experienced, because I think it could help. It could help you on your journey. It could help your loved one. And and if it at all possible to have both of you have your best lives possible, I would like that. That's what I'm about. And that that is what you're doing, Marty. I mean, your experience is not wasted. So you're using it to create this lantern that sheds light on somebody else's trail so that they can walk through it with a little bit more clarity. So that's what you're doing. Your book, your words, yeah, a a lantern. You're connecting with other people through your own experience. You're showing them empathy. You're listening to your own story so you can share it with others. It's really powerful. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll tell you, if you you can see, the one part, my my two Elaines, uh, that's, of course, from our very, very early years together. And then uh, this is uh, towards the end. And uh, just uh, needing to... Uh, there again, Karen, you ask how I'm doing uh, from the very beginning. And I just think about Elaine, and I think with all she ever did for me in my whole life, helping me with everything... The fact that I could have given her that kind of peace makes me feel really good. The fact that it took me so long to learn and understand makes me feel really bad. And therefore, I want to say, please, listen, try and understand, join the world of this new person, uh, but also understand this disease. That would make me feel good. And also take care of yourself on the journey, right? The whole idea of self-care and putting on our oxygen masks first and filling our, our fuel tanks so that we actually can give to the, our loved ones. So and self-care is not selfish, right? We have to eat well. We have to sleep, exercise, have some socializing, have people who help us through. We have to take care of us, Right? If we would be on a ship and our loved one would fall overboard and before we throw them the lifeline, we take a knife and we cut through the lifeline and have just a little bit of a fray in there and then we toss it out, our loved one grabs it and it breaks. Why did that rope break? Well, because we ourselves took a knife and we cut that rope. I found a series of notes and journals which are heading up each uh, uh, that Elaine had written. 
And I used some of those notes and journals to help people understand what Elaine was going through. And what she repeats time and again in her notes is how important I was in her life. And uh, uh, we had prayed together. We had cried together. But never did I understand the courage that it takes, nor did I fully understand how much she depended upon me. And so I talk about that, not in self-grandizement, but the drive home to the caregiver that they have to take care of themselves. If I love Elaine and I want her to give, have her get the best and I throw her a lifeline, but before that I slice it away. And again, how do I slice it away? By not getting enough sleep, by not eating well, by not getting enough exercise, by not making sure we have friends and also by not asking for help. And again, asking for help is a sign that you're not giving up. I want caregivers to please understand that. But we've got to take care of ourselves. We we really do. I remember my husband, when he was still able to talk, saying to me, please go home and get some rest so you can come back tomorrow. I went through counseling with the Alzheimer's Association. And one day I went to the Alzheimer's uh, counselor and uh, she said, well, what's bothering you? I said, well, I just don't feel like seeing Elaine. Well, she said, good. Well, what do you mean? I, and she, I, I asked her. Well, she said, a person who is ill, probably with, with Alzheimer's especially, is very sensitive and very aware of your feelings. And if you go there overtired and anxious, she can feel that. She can pick that up. And the point of the matter is if you're going there to try and give her comfort, but she picks up on your anxiety and begins to feel that, you're not doing her any good. So it is important that we as caregivers put our best foot forward as we visit and care for our loved one, but only if we ourselves and our own peace of mind can have the ability to to realize we've got to take care of ourselves. So once I realized that my own persona, just, just how I how I feel, it impacts on Elaine. At that point, then that helped me decide I had to take better care of myself. Yeah. And you talk very honestly in the book that at one point, thank goodness it didn't last for a long time, but you turned to what you call the caregiver's poison, which was alcohol. That was the one of the ways you were dealing with your stress. And again, thank goodness your attention was brought to that and you learned other ways you learned ways to take care of yourself, but that was an honest admission on your part. And so many people go there to numb their own pain, to deal with their stress. So I am so grateful you mentioned that very honestly and courageously in your book. You are correct. It was, it was, I was going for it for relief uh, for something or another. And uh, finally it got to a point where my daughter uh, gave me an article on the benefits of moderate drinking and it wasn't the fact that I was not drinking enough. Uh, and, and I sort of joke about it now, but really quite quite serious because I was going down this path and gosh, we've got all this emotion and these feelings and these experiences. And then you add on to that, the alcohol. And uh, so here, here is what I say in the book. I say all of the armies marching and all of the Navy sailing and all of the liquor that's distilled and all of the beer that's brewed is not going to stop this disease. And again, Karen, I get back to the fact if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. If we can understand this disease, know how to work with it, 
try to figure out how to dance in the rain until the storm has passed. Those are the kinds of things that we just simply need to do. And again, I think not very complex. No, you know, I'll end with this. Um, my husband was a marathon runner, ran 12 marathons. Oh, my. I ran one. When I got to the end of the race, um, Greg asked me, what's your next marathon? And I said, oh, no, no, no. One and done. And I didn't realize that the biggest marathon was ahead, right? The marathon of caring for him with Alzheimer's. And just like when we run a marathon, there are water stops. You have to have the right shoes. You have to train. You have to eat the right kind of breakfast. You have to do all those things that fuel you. So thank you very much for continuing to remind the world about how important self-care is for caregivers. Marty, um, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? I know they're going to want to do that. Yeah, well, thanks. Again, uh, the name of the book is My Two Elaines, and uh, any bookstore should have them, uh, Barnes & Noble and, and Amazon and so forth. Uh, but we have a website, mytwoelaines, all one word, dot com, mytwoelaines.com. And so uh, uh, my heart goes out to every hero, every caregiving hero, uh, and asking them to please take care of yourself. Please understand as best you can this disease so you know how to better learn, uh, cope, and survive. Karen, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. You're great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Marty. Everyone needs to get this book because we all know a caregiver or could be a caregiver. Marty, thanks for joining us here at Saving You a Seat. And um, I wish you all the very, very best. So thank you again. Thank you. I'm grateful. You're listening means so much, so please hit the subscribe button and join us for the next episode. To tune into the power of connection and transform your life at home and at work, please also get my book, The Connected Leader. It is available on Amazon and all online book retailers. And visit our page, connectedleaderbook.com. Stay connected. <laughs>